And in particular, I've been asked to look at um, what is the nature of the gifts um, as they are presented in, in Acts, and what gifts are evident and used in Acts, and then to look at their purpose and to look at what the outcome was of uh, the evidence of those gifts. And I just want to say in introduction that many theologians and, and scholars and teachers of the Bible talk about different groupings of gifts. And some people will say there's nine gifts and some will say there's 27 and you know, all these sort of different things. I just want to be clear about what I'm talking about this morning, not, not to dismiss uh, the possibility of looking at all sorts of other special abilities that we might describe as gifts, but I'm looking particularly good point. <laughs> I'm looking particularly at, at the gifts that are presented as the gifts of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Uh, and there's the passage, and you can see nine different gifts of the Spirit spoken about in that passage, and these are they. And if you uh, had your eyes and ears tuned, and I'm sure they were, as you've read through Acts over the last couple of months, you would have seen many examples of different ones of these gifts being used by the apostles in the circumstances that they found themselves in during that period that's recorded in Acts. There's too many to count easily. And, and when I started preparing for this, I thought, well, I'll give each, I'll, I'll hand out a copy of a chapter each of Acts, and I'll get you to go through each chapter and call out the gifts that you can see evident in that chapter. And I gave up because there were just too many, and it was, it was just going to take too long. So what I've done is I've decided to look at just four passages. And we might not even get through all four of them, but I thought if we look at some examples and look at these things for each of those passages, that would be a very useful way to address this topic. And the first passage that I've decided to look at is um, in chapter 2, verses 1 to 47, which is as the Holy Spirit first comes upon the followers of Jesus in the upper room where they've been waiting since um, he ascended back into heaven. And if we look at this passage, we can see examples of the gift of knowledge, the gift of faith, the gift of miracles, the gift of prophecy, the gift of speaking in tongues, and the gift of interpretation. Let's go. If you want to, uh, please open this passage yourselves, because I'm not going to read all of it verbatim. You've already done that. But if you've got it in front of you, you'll be able to uh, follow and confirm the things that I'm introducing to you. So in the first three verses, when the day of Pentecost came, the sound of a violent wind that filled the whole house, and they saw what seemed like tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. There is an example of miraculous powers. These, these are things that we might see in the natural world. You might see a strong wind. You might see a small flame. But, you, but there's a 
supernatural and spiritual element to what's happened. Um, it, it's, it's evident that a sound like the blowing wind, it doesn't say that there was a sudden tempest, it says there was a sound that people described as being like a violent wind. And then the, the flame, the tongues of fire, did something very uncharacteristic, you know, separated and settled on each person's head. Well, that's, that's not natural. That's a natural thing, fire, being taken into a supernatural domain with spiritual significance. And we see what some of the significance is in a moment. This was an anointing of the Holy Spirit on those who'd been waiting for what Jesus had promised them in the upper room. So there's miraculous powers. There's something extraordinary going on here that goes well beyond the natural. And there are many, many, many other examples in Acts. Um, there's probably, I think, three separate occasions where people who are chained in jail are miraculously released from captivity. There's a passage in chapter 8 where Philip uh, is taken away miraculously. He's on the road to Gaza. He completes his assignment and it says he just disappears. He, he miraculously was taken away and then it says he, he reappeared, came back in Azotus. That's not natural. So there's, there's miraculous things happening. Ananias restores Paul's sight after Paul is blinded on the road to Damascus. Peter restores Tabitha to life in chapter 9, verses 36 to 41. Um, Paul restores Eutychus to life in Troas in chapter 20. And in chapter 28, Paul is bitten by a viper and isn't affected by the snake bite. These are all examples of miraculous powers of the Holy Spirit evident in the life of the apostles. So, in the next verse, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. So here's an example of the Holy Spirit's gift of speaking in tongues. And there are other examples in, in chapter 10 when the whole of Cornelius' household starts speaking in tongues upon receiving the Holy Spirit. Or in chapter 19, 12 uh, people are baptised by Paul in Ephesus and begin to speak in tongues. In the following passage, verses 5 to 12, I'll just skip through, skim read through this. They were staying in, there were staying in Jerusalem at that time God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. Now they were there because Pentecost, as we call it, was a set festival in the Jewish calendar when they celebrated the giving of the law to Moses um, back in the times of Exodus. So they're all gathered there for that reason. They heard the sound and they gathered in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Now you can just imagine a dozen or so people on a balcony speaking in a dozen different languages and a crowd of thousands listening, it wouldn't be very easy to hear what was being said, even if it was being said in your own language, would it? You just imagine if there were 10 or 11 other people standing up 
here, and one of them's giving you this message in French, and one's giving it in German, and one's giving it in Swahili, and one's giving it in some other language, would you be able to understand what any of us were saying? It would be difficult. So there's, there's a supernatural intervention here which enables people to hear and understand what's being said to them, which is the power of tongues being interpreted through the Holy Spirit. The other thing that's evident from this passage is that the miraculous events, the sound of the violent wind, caused, it stirred up interest. And I believe this is one of the purposes of the activity of the Holy Spirit as we see it in Acts. It's to stir up interest. What's going on? What was that? I need to know. I'm curious. I'm amazed. I don't understand. I want to know more. People gather to find out what's going on. It grabs people's attention when they see the Holy Spirit at work in the lives of those who serve Jesus, serve and follow Jesus. In verse 13, some, however, made fun of them and said they've had too much wine. So one of the outcomes of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, as it was in the lives of the apostles, is going to be ridicule and persecution, as it was in this day. Not everyone is going to hear or see or, or receive what's offered through the Holy Spirit in the way that we might hope. And they're going to turn against it and turn against us and turn against the word of God, the truth of the gospel. We need to understand that that will happen and not be put off by it and not be concerned by it, not be fearful or anxious. We need to persevere. What did Peter do? Verses 14 and 15, he stood up with the others, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. Now, I think this was an extraordinary step of faith for Peter. Just Think about who he was, what his background was. Sure, he'd spent three years following Jesus and learning from Jesus. But other than through the Holy Spirit present in him, he was hardly prepared for this. Imagine. Just imagine, you've been hanging out in a closed room with, uh, with your friends, with uh, other followers of Jesus, waiting for something that he's promised that you don't really understand, and something amazing happens, and, and, and you step out onto the balcony and look, and there's thousands of people in the square, and there's pretty much an uproar. What are you going to do? If that was you, what would you do? And how is it that Peter was able to do what he did? 
There was faith. Peter received a supernatural anointing of faith through the Holy Spirit. There's no other explanation. You, you imagine his earthly self, you imagine your own earthly self thinking through how you might respond to that situation without any time to prepare for it. Bang, it happened. And Peter stepped out in faith and spoke out in faith. Had he prepared a sermon? And when we look through the rest of Acts, as you will have heard over the last couple of months, this comes up many, many times. In chapter 8, all the believers even though they were under persecution, kept preaching. Why? Faith. They had faith that they were doing what they were called to do. They were doing the right thing. Even under persecution. In chapter 8, verses 26 to 27, Philip got ready and went south towards Gaza. Why? Because he received a prompting from the Lord to go. Did he know what was going to happen? Was he prepared? Of course not. But he, and in faith, he did what the Spirit prompted him to do. What happened next? He went to the chariot and stayed near it as the Spirit had prompted him to do. Did he know what was going to happen next? No. Did he know why he was prompted to, to go up to the chariot? No. But in faith, he did what the Spirit prompted him to do. Ananias in Damascus goes to meet Saul. Was that a natural thing to do? Given that all he knew about Saul was that Saul had been persecuting the followers of Jesus and was coming to Damascus to do that very thing? How and why did Ananias go to meet Saul? In faith. And not natural faith, not faith that any of us would understand. It's a supernatural faith that comes through the Holy Spirit, alive in, in Ananias. Saul submits to baptism. Do you think Saul understood fully what that was all about at this moment? He's just spent the last few months of his life seeking out Christians, dragging out of them out of their homes, throwing them into prison, persecuting them. And he has this encounter, and I will guarantee he doesn't know the whole story. But in faith, he submits to baptism. That's not natural. That is a, uh, a spiritual intervention in his life through the Holy Spirit, helping him to understand that this is what he must do. And then in the same chapter... Saul is speaking boldly for the Lord. Now, how well prepared do you think Saul was to speak boldly for the Lord in his natural self? Not at all. But in faith, he spoke out. And as we'll see in a minute when we talk about knowledge, God provided the words he needed to speak. 
through the Holy Spirit. It says in, later in chapter 9, the church in Judea, Galilee and Samaria, with the help of the Holy Spirit, became stronger in faith. There's an explicit example where the faith that was expressed in the lives of the followers of Jesus was a gift from the Holy Spirit, over and above what faith they might be able to muster through their own understanding and their own thinking and their own emotions. It's over and above and it comes through the Holy Spirit. In chapter 18, Paul in Corinth, when they, when they arrived, they thought, we're not going to be here long. This is a pretty hostile place. Let, let's sort of, you know, do what we've got to do and get out of here. Paul said, no. In faith, Paul instructed them and encouraged them to stay. We've got work to do here over and above what you can see and, and the barriers that you can see. We're going to stay here because God wants us to be here in faith. And then Paul's en route to Rome in chapter 27. And, and he receives an assurance from God through a vision that, that everything's going to be okay. We're going to be shipwrecked, but no one's going to drown. In faith, he shares that assurance with the rest of the crew and gets them to prepare for what has been shown will happen. That also is faith. Now, if you were on that boat in those circumstances, what would you think the outcome of the storm and, 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 and everything might have been in your natural way of thinking? Disaster, probably death. But they had faith through the Holy Spirit. So they're just other examples where faith, and I, and I think, I actually think faith underpins everything that happens in Acts. And it's not just faith that we can muster from our own study and our own understanding and our own experience and our own kind of emotional connection. It's faith that goes above and beyond that, that is supernatural faith, a gift from the Holy Spirit. So, Paul is exercising that gift of faith as he steps forward and addresses the crowd on the day of Pentecost. And what does he say? Verses 16 to 36. He starts off um, where does it go? He's, they're not drunk? Yeah, they're not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine o'clock in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And he then lays out a classic exposition of the gospel message, quoting from Joel and from Psalms. Now, as I said before, do you think Peter had prepared a sermon? I'll bet he hadn't. Where did this knowledge come from? He was a simple fisherman who had, albeit, received the benefit of spending three years in Jesus' company. But he wasn't a scholar. And yet, he comes out with this carefully constructed explanation of the gospel message referencing key prophetic words in the Old Testament. And I'm going to suggest that that is an example of the Holy Spirit's gift of knowledge at work in Peter at that time. But not only knowledge, 
but knowledge expressed with prophetic power. He's not just um, teaching people about what things mean and reminding them about passages of the Old Testament that they should be familiar with. He is expressing it in a way that is designed to bring about change in their lives. He's speaking into the times. He's applying the truth of God's word into the times they were living in and the circumstances of the people to whom he was speaking. That's prophetic. That is the gift of prophecy through the Holy Spirit at work in Peter. And over and over and over again, and I probably will refer to a couple of other examples, we see these two things working together. A supernatural understanding and proclamation of the truth of the gospel, referring to all the scriptures that were familiar to the audience, but directed to the circumstances of the time for the individuals, for the nation, for all nations. Knowledge and prophecy inspired by the Holy Spirit coming from the mouths of people who were barely prepared to do so. It wasn't their own natural ability that was enabling them to speak with such understanding and purpose to the people. It comes up many times. And there's half a dozen examples of, you know, fair income, 20-minute sermon-type material coming from people like Peter, Stephen, Philip, Paul, and James, each of them in similar circumstances with similar authority and similar ability inspired by the Holy Spirit. There are also examples in Acts of, of something that we might think of as a more traditional understanding of what prophecy is. And for example, Agabus in chapter 11, with the help of the Holy Spirit, predicts a famine. So that, that might rest a little bit more with our, uh, our traditional understanding of what prophecy means in terms of foretelling events that can't be discerned you know, in the natural but, but prophecy is a lot more than that. Prophecy is stirring people up with the truth of the gospel and to bring about transformation in their lives. It's, it's knowledge with purpose. So when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what did they say? What shall we do? They were stirred by the message they had just heard and they wanted to know what to do next. And again, I believe this is one of the purposes of the activity of the Holy Spirit in the lives of Jesus' followers. Not only back in the days of Acts, but for us now in, in this time and in this place to stir the multitudes. Why? Because it provides a platform and an opportunity for us to speak the gospel truth to the world. Now I could walk out onto Tasma Street now, right now, and start preaching the gospel. 
what effect would that have in the natural? Probably big fat zero. Why? Well, there's nobody out there to listen. <coughs> but if there's been some <coughs> miraculous event, maybe even controversial, and some people are for it and some people are against it, <coughs> and, and there's some reason why this is a place where they might congregate, you know, something miraculous has happened, they'll be there wanting to know what's going on. They're curious. I want to be there. I want my picture on TV. Whatever it is, they'll want to be here. Then, if I walk out the door and start preaching the truth of the gospel, there's an audience. An audience that's been drawn together by the stirring of the Holy Spirit. Not only a platform and an opportunity to do so, but, verse 37, brothers, what should we do? There's an invitation to Peter to, tell, to speak more. You know, there's an engagement. Not just, oh yeah, this is pretty interesting. Oh yeah, wow. But, <gasps> what do I need to do? There's a conviction. That leads to an invitation. Tell me more. Tell me what I need to do now, having heard what you've just shared with me. So part of the purpose of the Holy Spirit's work in Acts is to bring people to the point where they invite those who've been blessed and filled with the Holy Spirit to tell them more. You know, it's, they're on the threshold of transformation and they're inviting Peter to tell them what they need to know to complete that transformation. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. That's one of the purposes of the Holy Spirit as we see the Holy Spirit at work in the book of Acts. Over and over and over again, stirring up a crowd, stirring up interest, stirring up opposition to create a platform from which the gospel truth can be shared. So Peter replies in verses 38 to 40, and he tells him, repent and be baptized. And he goes on. Once again, he speaks with a supernatural spiritual gift of knowledge and prophecy. It's not just knowledge. And the knowledge he speaks is not knowledge that he's prepared and accumulated in his thinking. It's knowledge that is placed in him through the power of the Holy Spirit at that moment in time for, for the situation he's in. And he says, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. That's showing us about how the truth is being made real for the circumstances and times that they're in at that particular point in time. <clears throat> what happened? Those who accepted his message were baptised and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. There's an outcome. What was the outcome of the work of the Holy Spirit through Peter and the others on that day of Pentecost? Many came to believe. And then in verses 42 and 43, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone who was filled, everyone was filled with awe at the many 
wonders and signs performed by the apostles. Wonders and signs. Miraculous powers. A gift of the Holy Spirit. So not only are there miraculous things that happened that initiated this interest, but it continues in the lives. We don't know what those things are. The scriptures don't tell us. It just tells us that there were many wonders and signs evident in the lives of those who were following Jesus, which continued to grab people's attention and draw them. What's going on? I've never heard of such a thing. What's this all about? I'm fascinated. I'm interested. I'm awestruck. Whatever, it brings them in within range, if you like, of the truth. Again, the purpose of the Holy Spirit's work is to stir up and to get people to take notice of what's going on. All the believers were together and had everything in common, sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need, continued to meet together. They broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favour of all people, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Outcomes. The people enjoyed the favour of the community around them. Wow. Outcome. Many more came to believe. The Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Imagine every... Sunday, when we gather together on a Sunday morning, there's seven days worth of more people being added daily to your number. <laughs> now in the natural world, we can't imagine how that might happen. Well, maybe we can. Maybe we offer a hundred bucks for everyone who comes to church on a Sunday morning. The numbers would probably increase a bit. I think that's probably cheating. For that to happen, there has to be supernatural intervention through the Holy Spirit. And don't say it couldn't. Okay, so I would suggest that that passage, a fairly well-known passage, gives evidence of the Holy Spirit at work in the lives of the followers of Jesus, particularly Peter, of knowledge, faith, miracles, prophecy, tongues, and interpretation, six of the nine gifts of the Holy Spirit. Let's have a look at this passage, chapter 3. From the start through to chapter 4, verse 31. And this is the uh, man who'd been crippled for 40 years. One day Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer, 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Man, lame from birth, carried to the temple gate. Um, Peter commands him to um, look at us. And the guy thinks they're going to give him a couple of coins. And, and Peter says, silver or gold, I don't have. But what I do have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Now, 
Which gift of the Holy Spirit is being expressed by Peter there? Anybody? Not yet. No one's been healed yet. Faith. Yeah. Healing comes. But Peter had to step out in faith first. Now, he knew. Everyone knew this guy. It says later on in the passage, everybody knew this guy. So Peter knew this guy had been crippled for 40 years. Now, which one of you would walk up to someone who you knew had been in a wheelchair for 40 years... (laughs) I don't have to finish the sentence. That took faith. Just to speak those words took faith. And it's not a faith that any of us would naturally be able to muster in that circumstance. It's supernatural faith, a gift of the Holy Spirit. A gift of the Holy Spirit that I think underpins everything. Because you would not boldly express any of those other gifts without having faith that you were doing what Jesus wanted you to do, without faith that it would bring glory to God the Father, without faith that it was the Holy Spirit at work in you and not some other thing. And I'm not talking about the faith that we might express by coming to church every Sunday morning and living our life more or less in accordance with what we understand of what God expects of us. That is faith, yes. But, but we can muster that kind of faith. We can live our lives like that. And we do. This is faith that goes beyond that. Because we do live our lives that way. We do come to church to worship and and hear the gospel preached and to enjoy fellowship. We do live our lives as best we can in accordance with God's principles. But we don't often walk up to... people in wheelchairs... and command them to walk. And then we come to the healing, as Brian pointed out. Another gift of the Holy Spirit. Another supernatural intervention in the natural world through the power of the Holy Spirit. And there are many examples in Acts, again, you know, we, we know of the miraculous healing that, healings that Jesus performed in his life, but that supernatural ability was passed on to his followers as it is to us. In chapter 5, it talks about Peter in Jerusalem. All, all, not some, all of the sick and people troubled by evil spirits were healed. In chapter 8, it talks about Philip in Samaria. So this is not just one, it's not all Peter. And later on, it's not all Paul. 
Philip in Samaria. The sick and those troubled by evil spirits are healed. Chapter 9, verses 32 to 35, Peter heals Aeneas in Lydda. He'd been paralysed for eight years. Chapter 19, verse 11, Paul in Ephesus, healing the sick. Chapter 28, verse 7, Paul on Malta, heals the governor of Malta's father, and then all the sick, all, again, all the sick. So there are many examples of healing in Acts through the power of the Holy Spirit. What happened? When all the people saw this person, who they knew had been crippled for 40 years, walking and leaping and praising God, they recognised him. All the people were astonished and came running to Peter and John in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. Stirring up. What's going on? I heard that, whatever his name is, so-and-so, is walking around. You know the guy, the one that's been crippled for 40 years since the day he was born. What's going on? Everyone gathers. What's going on? What's going on? What's going on? And what happens? Peter is provided with a platform and an opportunity to share the truth of the gospel with the crowd. And he does so. Another example of what I was talking about before. Fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? What an opening. Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we made this man walk? And he then goes on to explain in words that they would be familiar with referring to scriptures that they would be familiar with, what's just happened. He talks about God the Father, about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jesus, Moses, Samuel and all the prophets. Now where did he get all that from? He's not a scholar. He's not a scholar. I believe this is an example of a supernatural gift of knowledge given through the Holy Spirit. And he's not just sharing knowledge for its own sake. He's placing it into a context, a time, a circumstance, in ways that bring about transformation in the lives of the people who hear the message. And there's a, there's a big response. People are greatly disturbed by what's going on. So they seize Peter and John and put them in jail. <coughs> Great. But many, verse 4 of chapter 4, many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. So even though Peter and John end up shackled in prison, actually the work goes on. People's lives are transformed. Outcome. An outcome of the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of Peter and John and the followers of Jesus. The next day, the rulers, elders, teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, so was Caiaphas, blah, 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 blah. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? So here again, we see an example of the purpose of the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of Jesus' followers. What was the purpose? To stir up the crowd, to, to generate interest and a desire to know more, to create a platform 
from which the truth could be spoken to the people. And even an invitation here. By what power or what name did you do this? That's like handing you a ticket, you know? Tell me about the gospel. Now that's not what the people asking that question really intended, but it gave Peter the opportunity to give it. The invitation to share the gospel came through the great stirring of, of people because of the amazing things that were going on. All right. There's a few things that happen in the intervening verses which are just further examples of things that I've already spoken about. So go down to chapter 4 verses 19 to 20. Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. And this is another example of faith, moving in faith. You know, there could have been all sorts of consequences for Peter and John being so bold in front of the, the ruling authorities, you know, the custodians of religion in their day, of being so bold, all sorts of negative consequences, especially having not that long ago seen Jesus die on a cross, all sorts of consequences. But they spoke out in faith. And it's faith that goes above and beyond the faith that we might understand from, a, a natural, from our natural circumstances. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. So in some ways, the response of those people who did acknowledge that God was at work and who did transform their lives and choose to follow Jesus. The, the, the weight of that in the society was too much for the leaders to take the risk of further persecuting Peter and John. It, it was a way of protecting them, if you like. Supernatural, unexpected, unanticipated. But God provides what we need. And in that case, he provided, if you like, protection for Peter and John, who were released because the the elders couldn't decide how to punish them. They were afraid of what might happen if they punished them. Um, I'll just move to Acts chapter 6, verses 8. And this is also a long passage and I won't go through the whole thing. But this is Stephen. An amazing example of supernatural gifting through the Holy Spirit in wisdom, knowledge, miraculous powers, prophecy and faith. And, and we're introduced to Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power who performed great wonders and signs amongst the people. There is an example of the Holy Spirit gift of um, miracles. There's opposition from members of the synagogue, etc. Stirring up. Stirring up, creating platforms and opportunities. Listen to this, verse 10. But they could not stand up against the wisdom 
the Spirit gave Stephen as he spoke. A supernatural gifting through the Holy Spirit of wisdom that defeated the arguments of the leaders of the synagogue. And it goes on. Stephen's given a platform because of the stirring up. He gives this amazing statement of the gospel truth from verses 2 to 50 of chapter 7. Brothers and fathers, listen to me. And he goes through God's promise to Abraham. He goes through God's prophetic words over Abraham, Abraham's journey of faith, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob's 12 sons, Joseph, the time in Egypt, Moses and Aaron, Joshua, David and Solomon. He quotes from Amos, from Isaiah. It's, it's an amazing sermon which I believe was inspired by the Holy Spirit. The knowledge to present that great exposition of the gospel came from the Holy Spirit. And he speaks prophetically into the circumstances. In verses 51 and 53, you stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You're just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? This is prophetic boldness, challenge into the circumstances in which Stephen finds himself, which took great faith, I might add. What happened? When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. A stirring up. You know, like if everyone else is watching the Sanhedrin getting cranky, they're going to know what on earth has made these guys so cranky. What's going on? I want to know what's going on. I want to understand it. Now, at that point, at that point, Stephen could have said, look, I'm terribly sorry, guys. I, I overstepped the mark. Um, yeah, look, I'm sorry. What can I do to make this right? He could have. Is that what he did? No. But Stephen, verse 55, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. That sounds pretty supernatural, a vision like that. And he said, look, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now, that would be guaranteed to inflame the members of the Sanhedrin. To think that an ordinary person like Stephen had some privileged access to God above, yeah, that, would, that would just, they'd be boiling with it. So there's, there's a miraculous sign given to Stephen at that moment and it affirms his faith and he stays the course. He continues to speak with knowledge, power and meaning into the circumstances that he's in. And they stoned him. And he prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. And I see Stephen placing his complete trust in God at that moment. It doesn't matter what happens to me here. 
in the natural world, I have a supernatural understanding of what God has in store for me and I submit myself to his plans and purposes for me. And he died. That's supernatural faith. That's faith that we can't muster from our own strength and understanding. That's faith that comes from the Holy Spirit. Now I had another example here which I'm not going to use, but I'll just make one point because I haven't mentioned discernment, distinguishing of spirits, in the different examples that I've looked at so far this morning. And I'll just say that this passage in chapter 13 gives an example of that where Saul, verse 9 and 10, who was also called Paul, is filled with the Holy Spirit. So that's acknowledged right up front. He looked straight at Elimus and said, you're a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You're full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? That's discernment. That's a supernatural ability to discern an evil spirit at work in the life of somebody who might appear to be something else. So I won't say any more about it, but there are other examples in Acts. In chapter 5, the deceit of Ananias and Sapphira is revealed by discernment. There was no receipts and you know, no evidence in that way. It was discerned in a spiritual way. And in chapter 8, verses 18 to 24, Simon of Samaria wants the power, you know, he wants the power that he can see the followers of Jesus exercising, and he's rebuked by Peter, who recognises his desire for power as something coming from a false spirit. So that's another example of discernment. I just want to pause, and I apologise that I had far more material than um, the time allows, but read Acts again. <laughs> Keep reading it. You'll see these things evident over and over and over and over again. And it's, it's not to tickle our fancy or to improve our knowledge so that we get 9 out of 10 next time we sit the quiz or you know, whatever it might be. It's for life. It's for our life just as much as it was for the life of the um, followers of Jesus at the time. It's for us because what we're called to do is the same thing that they were called to do. They were called face to face by Jesus, go into all the world and make followers of all people and I will be with you. They received that message face to face. We learn about it. The Spirit prompts us. But it's still, it's for us too. It's not a command that, that finished the day the last of the apostles died. It's, it's still true and it's still difficult. You know, it's a real challenge. To, we really struggle to step into that space and say, that's what I'm doing because there's so many things that we can be afraid of and anxious about. Financial security, <laughs> reputation, physical harm. Lots and lots of reasons we can muster for not doing what we're asked to do. And do you think it was any different for Peter and the other apostles in their natural self? 
They faced death. Far more immediate and obvious a threat than we do. Now that's not true for Christians everywhere in the world, but it's true for us. They faced that right there. It could have been a bang on the door at two o'clock in the morning, any time that they were ministering the gospel, dragged out by the side, whatever. You know, and it did happen to them. We don't really face that. But it's still difficult for us to imagine ourselves stepping into the space that God has called us to step into. Of course. Of course. Because in our natural self, those things are overwhelming. But we're not asked to do it with our natural strength and our natural understanding and our natural faith. We're asked to do it with the help of the Holy Spirit. And when Jesus passed these instructions on to his followers and to us, it was hand in glove with a promise that he would be with us and that he would send the comforter, the Holy Spirit, to give us the strength that we need. And I am sure every one of us hopes for more than we see in terms of people coming to know the Lord. Every one of us hopes for that. If only we could see with our own eyes 3,000 people come to faith in the Lord in one day. We would love to... I'm, I'm, look, I have no doubt any one of us would be absolutely over the moon to observe that happening here in Hobart. But do we feel like Peter, that we would be prepared to stand on a platform at Salamanca Market on a Saturday morning and preach the gospel? Probably not. And I'm not saying that's what you should do. All I'm saying is it would take something supernatural for any of us to do that. It would take the Holy Spirit richly alive in us to do that. But that's what Jesus wants us to do. That's what God the Father wants us to do. And the Holy Spirit wants to be in us like that. Making us bold and faithful for the Lord. Not being afraid of the stirring up of trouble. Because that creates a platform. When the crowd gathers... That's an opportunity to explain what's going on. Look at what's going on in the world today. Lots of questions about what's going on. Why this? Why that? What's going to happen? Global warming, Palestine and Israel, wherever. Our own country, COVID. People want to know what's going on. Now, if a few absolutely unexplainable, miraculous things happen somewhere, People would start to take notice. There's a platform. We should be praying that the Holy Spirit continue his mighty work out there and in here, preparing us to do what he's called us to do. When we look at what's described in Acts, I would say the most significant outcome of the work of the Holy Spirit is people coming to faith in Jesus. 
And there's three examples just from chapter 9. But there's another. There's another outcome, and that is our own sense of fulfilment. In Acts chapter 23, Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. Now, I, I don't want to get personal and I don't want to judge or accuse, but just reflect on whether you think you could stand up and make that statement. My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. One of the outcomes of allowing the Holy Spirit to be at work in our lives is the fulfilment, the sense of fulfilment that we are aligned with God's purpose for us. And without the Holy Spirit at work in our life, we're not going to get to that point. Because we cannot do in the natural world in our natural strength, with our natural knowledge and intellect, the things that God has called us to do. We can't. It can only be achieved through the supernatural intervention, the power of the Holy Spirit at work in us. And the other thing, the other outcome is that God is honoured and glorified as the work of the Holy Spirit is manifest in his people. I want to finish with a prayer. It comes from chapter 4 of Acts, verses 24 to 30. And I've actually skipped over the middle section of this prayer just to keep it short. And it's a little bit clunky. You know, I might have been tempted to recraft these words somewhat, but I choose to use the words that are recorded in Acts for this prayer and I pray it for all of us and if you agree with me when I finish just say Amen. Heavenly Father you are the one who made the sky, the earth, the sea and everything in the world. We are your servants. Help us to say what you want us to say without fear. Help us to be brave by showing us your power. Make sick people well. Cause miraculous signs and wonders to happen by the authority of your holy servant, Jesus.